0: So several years ago, I ended up um, watching um, a documentary, and it fascinated me. And it was a documentary that took me and viewers behind the scenes of what was then a very high profile and controversial murder case. And the murder case involved a well-known and successful artist or uh, a novelist, And um, the case had all kinds of interesting twists and turns. And one of the things that fascinated me was that they took us actually behind the scenes into the lawyer's house, discussions with the lawyer and the team. And it was a case that as I watched it, I thought to myself, they're going to win this case. The man deserves to be acquitted. And the lawyering was absolutely brilliant. Um, and that was the, the, uh, the prosecution of Michael Peterson. And I am blessed to be joined by David Rudolph, who was Michael Peterson's uh, original trial lawyer and his wife, Sonia Pfeiffer, here on Killer Cross Examination. Welcome to this podcast, both of you. Thank you, Neil.
1: Thanks, Neil. Good to be with you.
0: So I am. A, I just want to get a little bit of background. So I'm going to say that you're the first tandem uh, that I've, I've interviewed. Um, so tell me a little bit about a bit about each of yourselves. I'm, I'm well familiar with, with David and his law practice. I'm a big fan. I'm sort of a nerd in that way. I really happen to like have like lawyer baseball cards almost on my wall. Um, and I've become a fan of yours, Sonia, through the podcast, but tell me about how you guys met and your backgrounds and, and what you're up to today.
1: Well, it begins with the Michael Peterson trial. So, I was a television news reporter for 12 years before I went to law school. And in 2000, I was working for a television station in Raleigh, Durham, WTVD, and I got assigned to cover the Peterson trial, which at the time was—I mean—covered by national networks, every local station, everyone across North Carolina. It was a a case where if you were on it as a reporter, you couldn't miss a thing. So, you naturally developed relationships with people throughout the course of that. That both the investigation beforehand and the prosecution and the trial itself and so david and i got to know each other during the trial um i always joke he didn't like me very much then he tries to dispute it but we don't need to go into the details of the phone calls i got after my six o'clock live shot when it was a story he didn't like um but after that case uh he and i just continued our relationship from my point of view i Was going to law school. I was doing that so that I could be a reporter who covered the law and justice. And I thought that would be a way to get out of the day to day in local news, which was really crime, traffic, and weather. It was just starting to devolve into that. And it seemed to me like a great idea to keep in touch with this guy who could be not only a helpful resource for me as I went to law school, but somebody who might be a good source going forward when I became, you know, a a national correspondent for. Dateline or something like that, and <laughs> that's not how it ended. <laughs> I ended up how did, going. To how school. did it
0: end?
2: How did it end? Yeah, well, I'm still a source.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, okay. Well, no pillow talk, but I, I about that. But, but you, you two are married. We are married now, yes. and we
2: have a ten-year-old daughter.
0: Mm-hmm. And you practice together. Yep. Um, and you have other endeavors that you're currently um, involved in, and I want you to. Um, before I get to some of the stories about lawyering that you've seen and what you think is some of the good and bad styles and tips for, for lawyers, um, tell me if you would, how you came about, um, the, your, your current project, which is a, a, a very popular, informative, and I think important podcast. So what's it called?
2: Well, it's called Abusive Power, uh, which is something that I've, uh, grown to, to uh, find to be a, a really important uh, concept in the criminal justice uh, field. Uh, and uh, over the years, I've just seen numerous examples, as I'm sure you have, Neil, of police and prosecutors and even judges abusing the power they are given uh, in ways that really undermine uh, the fairness of the system. And so that was the genesis of the idea. Uh, we happened to connect with uh, uh, Ross Dinnerstein, uh, who uh, did Innocent Man uh, on Netflix. Uh, and uh, from there, the podcast grew. And, and now it's been sold to Audible. Uh, Audible is uh, going to be uh, producing the second and third seasons. Uh, we've just started taping season two. Uh, the uh, format will be a little bit different. Uh, but the stories are just amazing.
0: You know, and I think do you find the cases, or do they find you?
2: Well, uh, it's it's a combination. Uh, some of the cases we knew about uh, just from either our personal experience or people who we know and have talked to in the past. Uh, others were found by uh, Ross and his staff, uh, just you know, doing some research. And the latest. Uh, uh, episode uh, comes from a a lawyer, a, a human rights lawyer in Great Britain, uh, Clive Stafford Smith, uh, who is well known in in wrongful conviction circles, and and he did this case. He's been on this case for 28 years, uh, and still going. Uh, so he's he's well equipped He's almost doubled my my longest uh, uh, foray into into representing somebody. Uh, And uh, and he's a central figure in the uh, podcast, as well as uh, his client and all the various witnesses who he's dug up over the years.
0: How many cases have you covered, Sonia, since you started the podcast
1: in the podcast itself? You mean? Yes. So in the first season, we covered 10 officially, each episode was its own case. We did an additional, what we called a, a bonus episode because we were launching the podcast soon after the murder of George Floyd. And we felt as though we were tone deaf to not talk about that case and the abuses we saw. And indeed we saw in the conviction and sentencing of Derek Chauvin, that abuse of power was one of the aggravating factors for which he got a sentence above that presumptive 12 years. So 11 in that first, epi- uh, first series. And this second series, as David said, it's a little different because we decided to just focus in on one case. I think it allows our listeners to go deeper into the story and to learn along with us and sort of experience a case step by step and analyze various abuses um, at different points in time during a case.
0: Do you two, um, you still are practicing law? Yes. Right. And is the focus of, your, of your, your practice criminal defense, civil rights, or a combination of?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I think it's still somewhat of a combination, although in the last 10 years or so, uh, I've really developed a niche in, into wrongful conviction work. Um, and so I would say that at this point, probably 80% or more of my practice is representing people who have been exonerated uh, and uh, we're now uh, trying to get them compensation for the wrongful conduct that put them in prison to begin with, and and that's really what I've been doing primarily for the last ten years.
1: And for me, I probably have a little more criminal in the work I do, but we tend to, you know, if I work on a criminal case or if we work on one together, it does tend to be a more complex case, a larger case that that you can really stay focused on, you know, I mean, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners are aware, the, the more you have in terms of caseload, the less attention you can really give to each case.
0: Right. So let me ask you this. Um, and I'll ask you to both of you. So one of the questions that I've often posed to jurors during voir dire is I try to have them put themselves on a spectrum of where they what their opinion is of the legal system. Some people think think that it works all the time and they're just stunned to hear about abuses and they just sort of brush them off and they think, no, there's got to be some other explanation for it. And on the other end are people who just disbelieve the system altogether. How do you communicate that to jurors in your, given all the cases that you've seen that the ones you've taken, the ones that you've turned down, the ones that you talk about on your show, how do you communicate to jurors in a criminal case or in a, in a, in a civil case?
2: Well, you know, I think that uh, it, a lot depends on how much latitude you're given in voir dire, doesn't it? Uh, it does, uh, are, you know, you it, voir dire,
0: are you permitted voir dire in North Carolina?
2: We are in, 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 state, in, court. in state court, in obviously court. in federal court, it's, it's a different story. Uh, But in state court, we're given fairly wide latitude if you know what you're doing. You know, if if you don't know what you're doing and you're wasting time, judges are not terribly patient uh, about that. You don't
0: think the bumper sticker question works with uh, (laughs) the judges from the judge? I watched that and I thought every judge I know that I've ever seen a lawyer try the bumper sticker question. They just general. okay, counsel, (laughs)
2: that's right. Three more minutes. Right. So, you know, what I try to do is I try to sort of uh, make it real for them. So I'll say something like uh, now there's been a lot in the news lately about, you know, uh, police interactions with uh, citizens and about the justice system. Uh, And 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 some people uh, take the view that the justice system is really working just fine uh, and we really don't need to change very much. And other people take the view uh, that the justice system is broken and we need some major reforms. You know, my question to you is, give me a sense of where you are in that spectrum. Uh, and then when they tell me, then my next follow up question is, can you explain why you feel that way?
0: Excellent. So I love that type of Wadir. I I love is that the way that you've been doing Wadir, David and Sonia, for your entire practice?
2: No, I would have to say, Neil, that to be honest, when I, the first trial I ever had, uh, I, voir dire was a disaster for me. <laughs> I mean, it was just a disaster. Okay, why? Why? Because I was asking, you know, yes and no questions, and I didn't think about where I was going to take it or why I was asking the question. I had a list you know what the of- the burden my- of
0: proof is, and his presumption of innocence, and you know what reasonable dot means it means reasonable and it means right,
2: reasonable yeah. Reasonable. So so it was just awful. And and I actually got a not guilty in that case, but
0: because they uh, felt so sorry for you.
2: Probably <laughs> so
0: <laughs> believe it or not, I know some lawyers that have gotten a lot of not guilties, and we sit there and we scratch our heads, and I think it's because the jury goes back and they say, We gotta do a
2: good job for this guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so Actually, the truth of the matter is I went back after that and I thought to myself, I never want to go through another experience like that again. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what had gone wrong and how I could make it better. And so I came up with a with a, I don't know if a system's the right word, but a, a, an approach uh, that really uh, focused in on open-ended questions and letting the jurors talk. Uh, And knowing if they say this, I'm going to go in this direction. And knowing if they say that, I'm going to go in that direction. And that was the key, because you need to know where you're going, where you want to take something when you start asking a question. You need to know sort of what are you trying to find out and, and how are you going to explore that depending on what their answer is. And so literally, I had a tree, you know, a decision tree. If they say this, you ask that. If they say that, you ask this. And and then gradually over the years, I just got more comfortable uh, talking to jurors. And that's really the key, as I'm sure you know, Neil. You got to get into a conversation with jurors. You got to be vulnerable. You have to tell them that you have your own biases and prejudices, uh, that you you couldn't sit on every case because of your own experiences. You need to encourage them to disclose the things that they might be embarrassed about. And the only way you can really do that is by disclosing the things that you might be embarrassed about. So you're all sort of in the same position. And and that's been really successful for me.
1: You know, let me, from my experience, I, I- would love, I
0: was going to ask you because, you know, you, you started as a, you have got a, a totally different background. I mean, you've got a reporter background and then you went to law school and then obviously so tell me your 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 view of it, your perspective.
1: Well, it's it's interesting to listen to David talk about his early experience in Voidir, because I think if you ask anyone who's a news reporter, whether it's newspaper, print, um, you know, or broadcast, radio, you learn very quickly. The worst thing you can do is ask a yes or no question. And so many of the things that lawyers learn in voir dire, reporters learn just in their day-to-day work. I mean, by the time I had done three stories, you know, in my early 20s as a reporter, I knew the way to ask questions. And then you also learn the way to connect with people. And so voir dire, I think, has always been one of my great strengths at trial because I know how to connect with a person. I know how to talk to a group. I know how to ask questions. And, you know, David talked about a decision tree. You get to the point where there's a level of comfort that you don't need the tree. You know the information you're trying to get and you begin to synthesize the answers. And from those answers, figure out where to go next. I think that one thing people underestimate is the value of practicing on friends and family. You know, we all do these mini focus groups when we have a case and we want to know how people are going to respond to facts. Don't forget that in something like Vladir, you can do the exact same thing with friends and family. And you talked about the scaled questions. Look, I was fortunate when I became a lawyer, not only did I already have more than a decade of experience in talking to people and forming relationships quickly with people who seemed to have nothing in common with me, but I also had a resource. I was married to David. I had gone to incredible CLEs. I knew David Ball and, and his strategies for how to ask questions that gave people a spectrum on which they could answer. But I also think if I didn't have that, I'd be able to take advantage of outings with friends, of family dinners, where I could sort of pose these questions and try it out on them. And I think that's something that's
0: difficult. People don't, it, it is, I encourage people and I do it all the time. You know, the question people always want to ask me is how can you represent that sort of person? And do you ever defend someone, you know, that you know is guilty? And I, you know, sort of s- smile at that and, and, you know, have my own kind of, depending upon the person, my own quick-witted, pithy, or, or you know, sympathetic ways of kind of answering that. But I don't think people realize how much we do use everyday communications to, one, better our people skills, better eye contact, and to try to listen and get feedback. Um, so those are great tools. And I think people a lot of times are afraid to talk to their peers. I'm not talking about practicing your opening. I'm talking about where they're afraid to do something and to look or sound bad, and if you're afraid to look or sound bad with the people who you know aren't going to judge you, you can only imagine i mean how you're gonna end up looking and sounding in front of a jury who is watching your every move um what david where are you from where Where are you born
2: you you can't tell that's that's good <laughs> it's good needle i'm 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 I, very happy by that.
0: I, I I could tell a little bit, but but I don't uh, like to ever. I I'm guessing you were born somewhere in the northeast, somewhere around a big city, somewhere probably that has an island.
2: Uh, <laughs> and well, like, now, now you're just guessing wildly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, I, I was I was born in New York City and grew up part of my uh, youth uh, in Queens, and then. Uh, moved out to Long Island. Long Island. Uh, Long uh, Island. Yes. yes. yes when uh, when my family was in when I was in third grade, uh, and I've worked the rest of my life to try to ameliorate that accent.
0: <laughs> what made you get into uh, to be to want to become a trial lawyer? Did you always know that was where you were destined? And what do you think makes you the trial lawyer that you are today?
2: Well, that that's a that, that's a, a loaded question. I, I, maybe I'll let Sonia answer the the latter part. But um, no, I I was not one of these kids who who thought, oh, gee, I want to get up there and and be a trial lawyer. Uh, you know, I grew up in the '60s and '70s, and you know, Vietnam was going on. Uh, and uh, you know, once I graduated from college, I needed to stay in some school, uh, or else go to Canada. Uh, and so uh, uh, I was debating between political science and and law school, and uh, ultimately decided that law school gave me more options. Uh, so I had no idea that I was going to become a trial lawyer. Uh, but then I got there, and I had a small section in criminal law, which was great. Uh, I had Irwin Younger uh, for evidence, which was amazing. Uh, I did a clinical program where I represented. Uh,
0: one of the original authors of one of the, you know, the 10 commandments of uh, cross-examination.
2: That's right? exactly. And he was just, uh, imagine sitting there in class three times a week, listening to him. Uh, it I was
0: really once asked him, Hey, are there, are there really 10? And he said, I'll give you, give you a, I think there are like seven, maybe six, but 10 sounds
2: better. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, yeah. So, and then I had this clinical program where I represented people who were charged with misdemeanors. And that's where I did that first trial. Uh, it was a six person jury. I had my supervising attorney sitting next to me, trying to help me get through this voir dire. Uh, and, uh, and I got a not guilty and, and that was it. I mean, as soon as the not guilty came in, it was like, okay, I know what I'm doing. The rest of my the, life, you got the rush.
0: You got exactly, it, you
2: got the, exactly.
0: It's like golf in a way. And I, you know, you 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 can you you hit a great shot, and that's what you remember. Is you want to sort of that great feeling of being able to duplicate it, but you really yep. change someone's life. Yes. So I guess you defer to Sonia about what makes you the the great you know tr- trial lawyer that you are today. So if, if you want to let her answer that, I'm you know. I'm,
2: uh, I, well, I'm, I'm Let, curious to hear what her answer is. You know, be, lo- I, I am too.
0: Let's be clear
1: what this is about, that he needs me to stroke the ego a little <laughs> bit and explain to everybody what makes him so great, <laughs> which I'm happy to do. I, love um, that. I,
0: I thought he had great patience. I, 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 I will tell you, so some of the things that I watched in the Peterson trial, I know that was not your first high-profile trial. I know you've had others before it. I thought some of the things you did in the trial were incredibly um, ingenious, including when the, um, I think it was the fire, The was it the tong or like a, the fire? The blow poke. The, the, what's that? The, the blow, the blow poke. poke. The blow poke. And it was identified and you called in a professional uh, photographer to come in and take what were some of the most high definition photos of the cobwebs and the dust. And just created the image with that picture alone of how long it had been sitting there. Clearly, right. it hadn't been picked up and used and, and put back. Uh, I thought that was brilliant. And I thought you're, but one of the things that I was so surprised at was you were seated the whole time during the trial, which is a, is a totally caught me off guard.
2: Have, you have to in North Carolina. It's a North Carolina, Carolina
1: thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Unless you have a piece of paper in your hand. And
1: then you can sit. If
2: you have a piece of paper in your hand and it looks like you're approaching the witness, you can stand up and then you can change your mind, and go back to sitting. But other than that, uh, in North Carolina, you have to be seated uh, during your direct and cross examinations. Is that if you
0: gotten used to that?
2: Um, I have. Uh, it was, you know, coming from New York, it was a really tough transition, to be honest. Uh, and uh, there, there are a number of times when I ask a judge, you know, uh, m- would you mind if I stand, and especially early on in my career? Well, that's what I was used to. Now it, it really doesn't matter to me. Uh, uh, I can I can cross examine as effectively, I think, uh, sitting down as, as standing up. Um, now, you know, the one thing I will tell you uh, that I learned this from somebody else, we all steal our best things from other people, of course. Uh, during Vardier, I pull my chair out from behind counsel table and sit right in front of the jury. Now, obviously I asked the judge's permission, but there is nothing between me and the jury. There are no notes. Uh, I'm just sitting there, you know, sort of uh, vulnerable uh, in a chair in front of these people asking questions. And I think that's part of, you know, you wanna eliminate the the, uh, uh, barriers Uh, in order to communicate most effectively. And I think that's something uh, that doesn't necessarily uh, occur to most people, but it's been really effective for me. Um, The other thing I I just wanna mention, if we're talking about Vardir for a second, uh, is uh, I had a federal judge in one of my cases give the analogy to the jury that uh, he had gone to uh, the University of Tennessee and uh, he could he could uh, referee a, a Vanderbilt-Duke uh, game, no problem. But he couldn't, he couldn't referee a Tennessee-Vanderbilt game. And it really sort of brought it down to a level that the jurors could understand. So, again, it's just, it's just a question of communication.
0: So to tell me your – tell me um, – so that analogy I'm going to come back to because I've, I've had a similar – now we've used similar analogies here because we've got real rivalry games here in Michigan. I've got, you know, we've got Michigan, Michigan State, Michigan, right. State, although Michigan, Ohio State hasn't been much of a rivalry lately. <laughs> um, so, Sonia, I, I deferred to, to you. You were going to tell me, um, you're going to do some ego stroking and tell me you you're such a great lawyer. So the floor is yours.
1: Well, sure. No, you actually teed it up well when you talked about what you observed on the staircase and what impressed you, because, you know, one thing I think is important for people to understand, particularly attorneys who have watched the staircase or who will watch the staircase and see the level of lawyering that, you know, was presented through David and his team it can be very intimidating. You feel like there's no way I could do that. But what's critical to understand is the level of preparation and dedication. As a reporter covering that case, it was clear to me that this was an excellent lawyer. He did lots of things really well. Now that I know him and we are married and we you know pr- worked on cases together, what makes David so good is how much He focuses on every detail in a case. There is not a page that goes unturned. If there are a million documents to go through, he'll go through a million documents. It really is a level of dedication and frankly, obsession, you know, that you cannot miss something. And I think that that, kind of preparation, knowing all of the evidence is critical. And then what comes into play are the years of experience, the sort of critical reasoning that exists. But then I think that David does have a a talent for strategizing. And, And again, that comes with time. But I think that one of his many gifts is being able to look at a case and look at the evidence and look at the options and alternatives and come up with a way... To present something, whether it's to a jury, whether it's in a deposition, uh, whether it's you know, on, on trial and cross-examining a witness. It's about strategizing and really thinking through that process. So, so how
0: um about, how about you? So let me ask each of you, um, Sonia, how would you characterize your everybody has a style, right? I mean, there's the Folksy style and there's the Colombo style, and then there are the guys in New York that are. Like I interviewed Jeff Lickman and I asked him, how would you describe your style? And he goes suffocating. <laughs> um, so, Sonia, how would you characterize your style of, of courtroom lawyer? And I know it changes from moment to moment and it changes based on the case. But all in all, you know, if you have to put yourself in some category. You got to put yourself in a, in a shoehorn yourself somewhere. What's your style?
1: No one has asked me that question before. Um, And I'll be interested to see what David has to say about my style, because honestly, I think my style is just being authentic. I hate to use such an overused word right now, but I am uh, comfortable and confident, and if I screw up, and you're the jury, and you see me screw up, you're probably going to know it because it's going to show on my face. If I'm asking you uh, as a witness questions that are challenging, that's going to come through. I think part of that is my reporter training—that you you communicate a lot through body language and through your voice tone and quality, and whether you drop back a little bit or whether you're really forward do with you somebody.
0: Change up your tone. Do you absolutely highlight and emphasize things by? Toning it down and then yeah. you're not yeah. always at level yeah. 10 or level 11. Yeah,
1: and, and I don't mean to say this in a dismissive way, but there is an acting quality about what I do. And that also, that you've listened to our podcast, that comes through in my interviews. You hear in my voice when I'm talking to somebody, if there's a sense of urgency, if we're talking about something and I'm upset, my voice is more like this. But if I'm talking to Christine Bunch about what it was like to hear that her son died, you know, then it changes. And so my style is, um, I don't know, I guess I, I'm
2: flexible, flexible. <laughs>
0: okay.
1: Um, See, yeah. So
0: I, it's because I got this label as a young lawyer. They started calling me the Rockweiler. Yeah. <laughs> Play on the word rottweiler yes
2: uh-huh. yes we get it
0: <laughs> because i was aggressive and the funny thing is that when people see me there are times where i've been aggressive but there are also times where i mean i've been fiery at times but there are times where i'm you know just my goal is just to let the witness just chip up all, all over him or herself and just give them the opportunity to do that so how about you, David? How would you characterize Sonia's style in court? And you can't say the same thing. It's not fair. <laughs>
2: All right, I can't say don't the same say,
0: Don't say authentic and flexible. Let me hear, <laughs> like, Why would you, if you were a, a prosecutor, what about Sonia's style of lawyering, her approach to cases, whether it's opening, cross-examination, whatever it is, what about that would you say to yourself, you better watch out?
2: Well, I think what you better watch out for is how well she communicates uh, to the jury, uh, because we're sort of a really good team. She's the one person who can tell me in the middle of a cross, I think you made your point, (laughs) you know, because I'm really having fun. And and the jury is sort of sitting there tapping their fingers. They've gotten it. And they're about to turn. (laughs) And Sonia will say, I think they've got your point. Uh, okay. so, uh, is just,
0: when judges say that to me and they go, we, Mr. I kind of approached the bench and I go, sure. And they go, they got, I think we get the point. I'm like, well, will you tell them <laughs> just, do we look over and just, we
2: lost your audio. Oh, geez. there, there you go. Yeah. So, okay. So anyway, so, so Sonia is just an incredibly effective communicator. Uh, and, um, uh, you know I won't use the word flexible though that was my word uh, but uh, she she adapts really well uh, to whatever the situation is I'm, I'm a little bit more one speed to be honest you know I, I, I tend to be intense uh, and I tend to be intense more than I should be probably uh, I think
0: very ser- now you looked very serious I mean for obviously it was a serious case but you looked very serious during the peterson trial you just had a look like i guess intense is a a very good word it it didn't come across like you were angry or hostile um and i think that's a skill that i think some lawyers need to figure out how to if they're intense they have to figure out because you still look like you were in control right like you weren't losing it but you were intense
2: um Yeah. And I think that that's just my natural personality. You know, one of the things I learned a long time ago is that I have to be who I am uh, and I can't be you and I can't be, uh, you know, Percy Foreman and I can't be F. Lee Bailey. You know, I I am who I am. And that's if I try to do something else, it's just going to come off as unauthentic. Uh, Playing sports, David uh well growing up i played soccer but not very well
1: listen he's so intense that our daughter is a little worried about the fact that he doesn't know when she's joking (laughs) this 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 is sort of an ongoing thing right now (laughs) so funny
0: because he looks like the kind of guy that if he would say hey do you want to play like a game of like squash or racquetball i would say sure and then you know i he'd he'd get out there and then he would be the guy that would be pounding me into the wall and (laughs) You know, right. the
2: ball
0: and go, <laughs> that, you're interfering.
2: Yes. Yeah. I, well, yeah, you're, exact, you're exactly right, Neil. And I apologize for doing that to you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So I'd like to hear, um, give me a good cross-examination story, one that you are particularly proud of, whether, and I don't care what case it was, each of you a good cross-examination story that you look back and you think that when you sat down and you still think to this day, Man, I did that one well.
2: Uh, I yours I've got, is the I've
1: best. I just have the best. I've got I mean. the perfect
0: one. <laughs> okay, I, I, I,
2: I hope you. say Of much. course, I am. How
1: could I think about anything else?
2: So, uh, well, it could be. It could be uh, from Peter. From uh, I'm uh, thinking Caruth. Caruth. Uh, you're thinking Caruth.
1: There's no better cross-examination no, story. Sure.
2: Owens is a good one too.
0: Uh, mm. uh, well, so I, I, let me just tell the jurors who don't know that one of the things that I took away that lawyers still do to this day is, then uh, if all we have stolen from you, is your top 10 list of, uh, of reasonable doubts. And, of course, you add in there that these are the 10 that, that you identified. Of course, the jurors may see another million. But at the time, what many don't realize is that there was, David Letterman had a very popular top 10 list on his, uh, which I thought was a great play on popular media. So yeah. anyway... Well, uh, listen,
1: so, I'm going to give up. I'm going to give up my story about cross examination because both of his will beat whatever I have. Okay. So you should just tell both of them. Right, and I'm, I'll, I'm I'll tell both. Yeah. yeah. So, so.
2: During, during the Carruth case, Ray Caruth, I represented Ray Carruth, who was a professional football player charged with uh, contract killing of his uh, then pregnant girlfriend. He was facing the death penalty. And the prosecution made a deal with the hitman, the guy who actually shot this woman, uh, and Van, Brett Watkins. Van Brett Watkins. And this guy was like six foot five, 260 pounds, shaved head, uh, you know, an intimidating figure. Okay. Um, and so- And
1: mentally unstable. And
2: mentally unstable. And and uh, you know, I had this whole cross-examination ready for him until he flipped and, and uh, became a state's witness. And so I decided I was gonna put him on myself, as an adverse witness uh, because uh, my whole theory depended on the uh, jury understanding that this guy had just acted on his own out of anger. Uh, And I needed needed to let the jury see him and understand that he could do this without anybody agreeing uh, to pay him anything or to do anything.
1: And let me him. just provide a little context that the, the defense theory was that Van Burt Watkins was pissed off because Ray owed him money, a drug deal had gone bad. Whereas the prosecution's theory was that Ray hired Van Burt Watkins to kill his girlfriend. Right. So that's the context in which this cross happened.
2: Right. So, so anyway, I called Van Burt Watkins to the stand and I, I started cross-examining him about all the violent acts that he had committed in his life. Uh, and, and then we got into the fact that he, he claimed to be a hitman. But on the night of the of the murder, uh, he was out trying to find a gun uh, to commit this. You know, this was supposed to be a planned hit. But here he is like an hour before the shooting, calling around, asking people if they have a gun. And so at some point in the cross, I said to him, so so Mr. Watkins, if I understand you correctly, you were a hitman without a gun. Is that right? <laughs> and he said, I didn't need a gun. I could kill you with my bare hands. I'm 286 pounds, and I could rip you limb from limb like a little rag dog. Wow. <laughs> and I said, thank you very much. <laughs> and I sat down, uh, and the jury acquitted Caruth of the of the murder.
0: Did every juror, when he say that, lean back?
2: And- oh, no, they had they had, a, they had already leaned back that, you know, during the cross, he was getting angrier and angrier. And actually, the judge in the middle of the cross had brought in some extra bailiffs. So he had a bailiff behind him he had a bailiff behind the witness. The jurors had moved about three or four feet away from the witness stand. They'd all sort of shifted their seats. Uh, and he had stationed the bailiff in front of Van Brett Watkins. And afterwards, the judge told me that he was just convinced that Van Brett Watkins was going to come out of the chair <laughs> and try and get at me. Uh, so that
0: that is a rare moment in court where you get, that's like a Perry Mason, Matlock moment where the guy just implodes and then explodes all over the entire case. It
2: it, It was just
1: like a few good men. You know, you can't handle the truth. It was
2: unbelievable. It was was unbelievable. The second one is a little less dramatic, but uh, I was cross-examining a a police officer who had engaged in a very uh, uh, suggestive. suggestive lineup. He had, my guy had been, uh, well, this
1: is a current case that we have. Yeah, it's a it's current a wrongful case. conviction case.
2: Anyway, so so my guy who spent ended up spending 43 years in prison before being pardoned, um, he he uh, was wearing a long black coat when he was arrested. Uh, and so somehow or another, although it wasn't in the original description of any of the perpetrators, uh, the witness, the sole eyewitness had added this black coat to his description. And so there's three lineups conducted by this cop, one after the other. Same people. Uh, my guy is the only guy in a long black coat. Everybody else doesn't even have a coat on. Uh, and so need, needless to say, the witness picks my guy out three times in a row. So now we fast forward 30 years uh, and I'm cross-examining this guy. Uh, and I have the pictures of the lineups, which he doesn't realize I have. Uh, And so I I start off, you know, very nicely. And I say, well, um, when you when you put Mr. Finch in the lineup, uh, did you leave his coat on? No, no, I didn't leave his coat on. Well, why didn't you leave his coat on? Well, that wouldn't have been fair. Why wouldn't it have been fair? And he says and notice these are all open ended questions.
0: I was just going to say these are all open ended questions, which. Sometimes you can ask if the answer can't hurt you.
2: Exactly. And that's the rule. Not Ir- Irvin Younger's rule is, is a little bit wrong, but we'll get to that in a minute. So I said, well, why, why, why wouldn't you put a coat on it? Well, that, that wouldn't have been fair because, you know, a witness is supposed to identify somebody by their face, not by their clothing. And so if, if I had put a, a, a coat on them, that wouldn't have been fair. I said, OK. Uh, and then I took out the, the photo the first photo. And uh, I showed it to him. And I said, uh, do you see Mr. Finch there? Yes, I do. Uh, What's he wearing? "Uh, He's wearing a coat. Is anybody else wearing a coat? No. I said, well, I thought you told me that that would be unfair. He said, well, I didn't remember that. I said, I'm not asking you what you remember. (laughs) We, We can see in the photo, right? Right. So would you agree that that was an unfair lineup? Well, yeah. Then I took out the second photo and I said, take a look at this. You see Mr. Finch? Yes. Is he still wearing a coat? Yes. Is anyone else wearing a coat? No. I said, well, if it was unfair the first time, then it would have been more unfair the second time. And he said, well, no, not not more unfair, just unfair.
1: <laughs> Let me add this as, a, as a, I love practice, it. a practice tip to what David did. He he got lucky in that um, this cop at the beginning went ahead and said it wouldn't be fair. He set up. He set up for David what we can do in cross-examination of a police officer. Let's say that there was something the police officer did wrong, whatever, whether it's a lineup or whether it's a, you know interviewing two people at the same time. The thing to do in Cross is to always start big, like draw the lens back. You took basic law enforcement training, didn't you? Yes, I did. Why was that important? Well, it teaches you the basics. That's right. And there's a chapter in there about this, isn't there? Yes, it is. And you completed that course. And so what you do is you set all of this up. And then you begin to narrow into what did or didn't happen, and I think that you know in this case the officer sort of offered up what the rule was. It's like starting with the rule or what the practice, what you're supposed to do, and then you begin, you know, things that they can't possibly disagree with because there it is in their training. Well,
2: and let me,
0: and it's hard to disagree with how unfair that would that would be. I mean, he he opted for what he thought was a safe harbor answer.
2: Exactly. And that's that's the point that should not be lost, which is it wasn't completely luck that he gave me that answer. He gave me that answer because he was trying to make himself look good, look like a good cop. And so I knew when I asked him the question, well, why didn't you put the coat on him? I didn't know the exact words that were going to come out, but I knew he was going to try to say something that would make him look fair, that would make him look reasonable. And so part of this is sort of putting yourself in the mindset of the witness and sort of figuring out, well, what's the witness going to want to say in response to this question? And, and that's when it's really safe to ask an open-ended question. Right. I'm definitely, I, I, I
0: think we're all saying the same thing. David has a, just so much experience, but we're all sort of, for those who are, if they're young lawyers who are listening, I certainly am not saying that you can't ask an, an open-ended question, but you have to really be able to, to, to feel the moment and know that the open-ended question is not going to hurt you. Cause what would that be? Would that be fair? And he said, no, that would be unfair. If he said, yes, that would be fair. That depends. I'm sure that you had a way that you were going to deal with it and could have quickly converted to leading questions that would have I would have put
2: him in the box. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's a question of being, of being prepared for the unexpected answer and yeah, knowing- you are able to ask
0: an open-ended question like that and have the witness give it up to you like that, it certainly, it makes it a more profound gotcha when you go to but or however, or we'll then take a look at this because you're now taking an exhibit which is a fact beyond change. And you're now putting that right to the witness, comparing it to his answer. Right. So really brilliant. So let me, um, I, I could probably talk to you guys for hours, but I, I can't afford your, your billable hours. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I do want to, at the end of every podcast, first of all, I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours, David. I have been for a while. Sonia, I've become a big fan of yours. Um, and you're both such a great team. And I think have so much to offer. Um, Would you, one of the things that I like people to do is to be able to find you or to reach out to you or to find the things you're doing, um, you know, in the law and in the podcast. So let's start with your firm and how would someone want to reach out to you if they wanted to reach out to you?
2: Well, the firm has a website, uh, which is Uh, www.rudolphwidenhouse.com. I have a personal website that I sort of put up uh, when the staircase came out, uh, which which goes into some depth into sort of who I am and why I do what I do and cases I've worked on, and that's uh, www.davidsrudolph.com, and then we're on social media, Sonia.
1: Now, there's one one other way too um, to find. Me is, I also own an art gallery here, and that's eldergalleryclt.com. And the gallery's real focus is on um, contemporary programming and artists who are addressing contemporary issues in their work. So in some ways, an extension of advocacy. Um, But our social media is another way. Um, I'm on Instagram. That's Sonia Pfeiffer. And on Twitter, it's the flip. It's Pfeiffer Sonia. Uh, I don't do that much on Twitter, although I probably should. And then David is on Twitter. I'm
2: on Twitter. Uh, and, and what are you
1: on Twitter?
0: David S. Rudolph?
2: I, uh, I don't remember. Just look me up on, you can look me up on Twitter.
0: And if they want to find the podcast, which is Abusive uh, power, fabulous. It's an award-winning podcast. Um, and I don't mean like, I mean, it is really, I've listened to them and I'm a guy who doesn't have a lot of time to listen to things. And I've been in, just sat in my car, you know, and- People are looking at me like you coming out. I'm like, yeah, one more, one more minute. <laughs> I want to hear how this thing ends. So what's the podcast and where can people find it?
1: So you can just go to abusive power. I think it's abusive power um, And that will take you to all of the places where you can find it. Uh, you can go to abusive power on Apple right now. I'm just going to double check the website. So people make
2: it's available wherever you download your podcast. Well,
1: and it's going to be on, um, on, audible. on audible. Right.
0: Okay. So that's uh Audible is a big um,
2: It's an Amazon company actually. Yep.
0: It's a big platform That's, that's big time. That's yeah, like podcasts, podcast audiobooks backyard to 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 what is it called? The um, what's the what's the big wrestling thing that they do? You know, the guys MMA, yeah. WWF. <laughs> no, that's, that's not even in existence anymore. Oh, jeez, I'm showing
1: my age. Okay, but yes, it is abuseofpowerpodcast.com. That's the website. And from there, you can link to anywhere and you can read about the stories and a little bit about us also.
0: You know, I am so appreciative that you guys took time out of your busy schedules. And I really encourage everybody to listen to the podcast. If you think the legal system works or works all the time, you really need to listen to David and Sonia's podcast, because they're probably the the first season probably scratched about was scratched just a very, 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 very surface of the issues in the legal system. And now they're going to go in depth with cases and take you behind the scenes, kind of like what happened in the staircase, but they're going to take it to you behind the scenes week in and week out. You will absolutely be mind blown about the challenges that uh, people face in court. I can't thank the, the two of you enough. Um, and thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for, have, for being my guest on Killer Cross Examination. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Neil.
2: We appreciate it.
1: Have a good one.